For centuries, there's uh, been a particular prayer that has shaped the uh, beliefs of our uh, Jewish sisters and brothers. It's called the Shema, and it's a prayer that is foundational to the Jewish tradition. And the traditional Shema comes from the part of the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible, and there's little doubt, if any, that Jesus as a Jew frequently recited the Shema and taught his followers to live by its words. The Shema reads, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Let these matters I command you today to be upon your heart. Teach them thoroughly to your children and speak of them while you sit in your home, while you walk on the way, when you retire, and when you arise. Bind them as a sign upon your arm and let them be a tefillin between your eyes and write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. In other words, loving God was considered to be central to all of life, and the Jewish people were not only to talk about the love of God with their children day in and day out, but to talk about the love of God during activities, daily activities, in the morning when arising, in the evening when going to bed, and even to wear a reminder of loving God. And this notion of literally wearing a reminder comes from something called the tefillin, as we heard in the Shema, and these are all so-called phylacteries, and phylacteries are two little uh, leather uh, black boxes, you may have seen them, that are worn, that contain, uh, that contain parchment with words of scripture that are worn on the upper arm and on the forehead. And in this way, the command to love God would, would literally have been front and center as a visible reminder of loving God in a person's life, day in and day out. As I thought about that, I've had to wonder how things might be different in our culture if we carried the idea of love visibly around day in and day out. And we certainly know that Jesus added to the words of the Shema when he said, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus not only wanted love to be the focus of all of his followers, but for love to infuse every aspect of daily living. Does it infuse ours? Back to Jewish tradition, the Shema. As the story goes from one person, there, a number of years ago, there was a great deal of tension and conflict within this Jewish synagogue. And it all started one day when the congregation had been gathered for worship. And during the worship service, people recited the Shema. And while the words were spoken, half of the congregation stood up, while the other half remained seated. And those who stood up shouted at those who were sitting, stand up, stand up when you're reciting the words like you're supposed to. And those who were seated shouted at those who were standing, sit down, sit down, you need to sit down, that's the way we do it here. And as the shouting continued, conflict literally broke out during the worship service. The poor rabbi didn't have any idea what to do, so after the service he decided to consult with an older and much Rab, much older rabbi about the conflict in his congregation. And when he went to visit the older rabbi, he took one representative from each faction, a sitter and a stander. And when they were in the presence of the older, wiser rabbi, the person representing the standing faction asked, is it not the tradition, the right way of doing things to stand when reciting the Shema? And the old wise rabbi said, no, that's not the tradition. Well, feeling relieved and, in fact, gloating a bit, the person representing the sitting faction said, Aha! So it's our tradition to sit down when reciting the Shema. 
The rabbi answered, no, that's not our tradition either. So the younger rabbi who had brought the sitter and the standard was puzzled and asked, I do not understand. My congregation is in terrible conflict over this. They've broken into factions. There's name-calling. They're castigating each other. They're fighting with one another. There's name-calling. They're saying that the other group is not faithful to the Lord. They yell and they shout and blah, blah, blah. And interrupting the younger rabbi, the elder rabbi said, Ah, now you understand our tradition. Factions, conflict, disdain for the other, grouping people into groups we cannot stand, making assumptions about motives and character, an inability to listen or hear, thinking we are 100% right and the other is 100% wrong. These descriptions describe so many facets of our culture. From politics at the national level to school boards, local elections, development plans, environmental questions, and yes, and perhaps even especially religious institutions. The current state of affairs makes it seem that it would be much easier to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. The Shema and Jesus' additional commandment of loving others can be hard to find, can it not? In public discourse. And I'm heartbroken by this. But what's even worse is I realize that I am part of the problem. I am guilty. I have been feeding it. I have been adding to it. And I know and believe that God is not happy because the state of how we are in so many areas of life in America is frankly antithetical to the gospel and the core of Christianity. Don't worry, I'm not going to point the finger at you nor am I going to point the finger at any group. But I'm going to point the finger at myself. Because in my very small world, I have contributed to the current state of affairs. A central theme of Scripture, a central theme of Scripture, far, far, far more prominent than any issue that's dividing churches in America today. Far more prominent is the notion that every single human being is a beloved creature of God. Every single human being is a beloved creature of God. Does that inform our discourse today? And I know that I don't always act or think in that way. Sometimes what I hold in my heart, whether or not I share it, does not reflect God's love, commitment, dedication, and passion for every single human being regardless of persuasion. That said, I need to be clear, I'm in no way suggesting that all human beings can or think about issues in the same way, certainly not. Nor is it realistic to assume that all people will come to the same conclusions about things, even people of faith. Differences are real, significant, they matter. Opinions vary dramatically, and some perspectives are likely to reflect truth more than others. But such disparities are not a free pass for me to act or think in the way that I sometimes do. And terribly and sadly, conflict within congregations and across denominations are real and painful and destructive. 
And again, that said, there are real and valid areas of disagreement. Differing views are more than okay, but the conduct that follows from this is often far from okay. While I'm naming a reality I believe exists in many areas of American life right now, my focus today really is about religious division. And it's not my intent to leave us with a sense of despair or upset, but rather with hope that day by day we can be different and work person by person to a more peaceful and loving way of living in the midst of real differences. Jesus had a lot to say about how we conduct ourselves with other people with whom we disagree. Jesus had a lot to say about how we conduct ourselves when we have issues with people who have issues that we feel that are issues. And how we go about living in this factionalized culture, frankly, I believe, is where the rubber meets the road as we follow Jesus. Well, speaking of nasty factions and divides, how about Paul's letter to the Corinthians? Now, Corinth, it's in ruins now. It's a great place to visit, but it is in Greece. It's not far from Athens. And when Paul was around, it was a major trading center. Cultural influences coming from all over the place. There was great disparity in terms of how people thought. People worshipped all kinds of different gods. There were all kinds of beliefs. And Paul visited Corinth, we know, at least twice during the 50s. And during his first visit, he was there over a year, worked as a tent maker, and worked to help people get to know who Jesus was. And later, during his second visit, he stayed for about three months. And when Paul was in Corinth, he would meet people in their homes to talk about Christ. And he taught people everything he knew about Jesus. He also very likely shared his own history, how at one point he had hated Christians because all Christians were bad, he thought. All Christians were bad, he thought. And he shared that he had been a very divisive fellow who had stirred people up and took sides. Got to get those Christians. Throw them in jail. And that was all before he encountered Jesus. But first we know the church in Corinth thrived. It took off. And because it was doing so well, Paul thought it was okay for him to leave and go to another community and start talking about Jesus in, those, in a new community. But very soon after Paul left, guess what happened? Conflict, dissension, hatred, factions. Things got really, really, really bad. And so in response, Paul wrote the letter that we heard about today. From excerpts, as we heard Marion say, I'll put it as urgently as I can. You must get along with each other. Cultivate a life in common. I bring this up because I've heard this disturbing report that you're fighting among yourselves. You're picking sides. Does the Messiah have been chopped up into little pieces? Paul was furious. Well, soon after Paul left the church in Corinth, we know that the people did divide up into factions. Different groups claimed superior positions and opinions and believed that certain leaders within the church were more worthy to be followed than others. And what was bad was that people in one faction believed they were the ones who were faithful to Christ, whereas people who were in another faction were not being faithful to Christ because of their beliefs. And so here we are in Corinth, I mean in America, 
in 2020. I, you know, I've, I'm nearly 60 years old and I've been in the church all my life and I don't know if in churches, between churches and between religious groups, I've ever heard such utterances of disdain and divisive speech and who gets Jesus and who doesn't and who's faithful and who's not. And what's worse is that perhaps not so much in words, but certainly in my own heart I've contributed to it. So what to do? Well, there's a lot we can do. That's the good news. There is a lot we can do. You all know the well-known quote, we can be the change we want to see. But I want to be more specific. I want us not to say to ourselves, we can be the change we want to see. I want us each to begin to say, I can be the change I want to see. Because frankly, what others do, we have no control over. So I want to be the change I want to see. And I believe in my own little world, I can be different. I believe we each can be different, even if very imperfectly. And we can be the vessels through which the Holy Spirit of God moves. We can make the choice day in and day out, day in and day out to invite the Holy Spirit to come into us and to take us over and to help put ourselves aside so that we, wherever we are, we become the presence of Christ, filled with love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, regardless of what's going on around us. So the question is, how as individuals can we be different and not add to the fray? How can I be different? And while I don't have the answers, I just want to throw out some little tidbits in my remaining short time. And maybe one of these little tidbits will resonate with you more than another. And if it does, then I ask that you pray about that. The first thing to think about, I think, comes straight from Paul's letter to the Corinthians when he asked, was Christ divided? And here through this question, Paul attempts to rein in everyone and all of the groups to remind them of the one thing that binds them together, Jesus. Paul says the one thing that matters most is Jesus. Jesus Christ is not divided, therefore you should not be divided either. And Paul tells the people of Corinth that unity is fundamental to the health of the church. That unity does not mean that everybody thinks the same thing, but rather unity means being unified for the common purpose of Jesus in the midst of diversity. Now many of you know I'm, I'm in the Episcopal Church, even though the chapel's not. We have people from all different denominations. And I need to remember that when someone says to me, uh, no, you're really not faithful because you've come from the Episcopal Church, or no, you're not viewing that part of Scripture. No, no, you don't get it right, which means you don't get any of it right. Or since you're not part of that church, yeah, you're a pastor, but it's not really valid. Or, gee, you know, communion here is not really totally valid because I'm not sure that everybody is in apostolic succession. Or, you know, it goes on and on and on, but I need to remind myself that we are all one in Jesus. That there are no outsiders to the Christian church. Regardless of opinions held, lifestyles lived, political party affiliation, 
age, ethnicity, gender, orientation, and all kinds of other things. And if I can get in my head that we are all one when I think about other Christian groups, regardless of what they might be saying on television, if I can remind myself that we are one regardless of what might be happening around me, then maybe I won't think that we're not all one. Well, in addition to this, however, we can all choose to remind ourselves, and this is hard sometimes, that no one, no one is right about everything. There is not one human being that gets it all right. Thank God. And when we realize this, we're less likely to act out towards others, recognizing there may be more to the truth that we're holding on to so tightly. In the book of Proverbs, we find fools think they're always right. And also in Proverbs, we find, do you see persons wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for fools than for them. And whenever I feel like I'm, whenever I notice that I'm pointing the finger at somebody else or another group because I feel like better, there's this story, an irritating story in Luke's gospel about someone who feels so grateful that they are not at all like the ones they're criticizing. In no way, shape, or form am I like him or them. And in the story, a very powerful and knowledgeable religious leader says, thank God I'm not like those people. And you may remember, or you may not, but Jesus' reaction was not very positive. And this, in part, is a reality and is a call to all of us to remember perhaps one of the most important human virtues aside from love is humility. I love this song by Mac Davis we're going to hear in a little bit that Willie Nelson sings. I love his version. Here's some of the lyrics. You know the words. And it's a great, it's a great humorous way, satirical way to remember the importance of humility. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking every day. <laughs> humility, it's pretty darn important. We don't get it right all the time. And then there are these words that may be helpful when it comes to thinking about unity and not jumping into the fray as Jesus expressed on the Sermon on the Mount. Boy, this is hard for me at least. Do not judge others and you will not be judged for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is a standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about the tiny speck in the other person's eye when you have a log in your own? Wow. But in addition to remembering that we are all one in Christ and cannot be divided, that we are called to humbly recognize that we all get it wrong sometime, that we all have logs in our eyes, it's also helpful to pay attention to this very simple yet extraordinarily challenging thought in a letter written by a person named James. But thinking about not contributing to the fray in factions, James writes, please understand this, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for anger never produces good things. That calls me up short because sometimes I feel angry toward other groups, but anger never brings about good things. There's this image in the book of Genesis after 
when, when Cain is full of rage. And God says, when you're angry, there is sin lurking at your door waiting to get you. In other words, anger, when we feel anger, it can put us on a very slippery slope toward divisiveness and dissension. Just a few more thoughts here we're thinking about. Again, from the book of Proverbs, this superb little gem. Don't belittle other people. Wow. As I mentioned, expressing opinions, talking about ideas, highlighting differences, having varying thoughts about things, all of this is okay and more than okay and good and human, but to castigate or assassinate the character of a person who has a different opinion is going to lead us away from what is right straight into factions and anger and rancor and division. A couple of other little things here before I wrap. There's this little tidbit that Paul writes to the people of Rome. Be at peace with everyone just as much as possible. And when I thought about this this week, I was thinking... When I'm feeling ramped up over something, I, w- I wonder if one of the first places I go to is asking myself how, how I can bring peace into this discussion, how I can bring p- p- peace into this faction, how I can be, bring peace into whatever it is that's going on around me, regardless of what it is that's happening around me. How can I be a peacemaker? Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. So there's a lot we can do at the individual and personal level to be the change we want to see. We can choose to be different from what is happening around us. We can be the presence of Christ, should we so choose. Let us go ahead and express our views and opinions and thoughts, but let us do so in a way that makes love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control possible. And we do this, I believe, by not focusing on other people but spending our energy on ourselves. My energy needs to be on what I do, not on others. So to conclude, we can all choose to live live as if we are one in Jesus. We can humbly embrace the truth that we're not right about all things, that we get it wrong. We can choose not to be judgmental and to spend our energy on the logs in our own eyes rather than the specks of others. We can look at anger as a danger sign and with God's help learn to release it. We do not need to castigate or belittle the character of other people with whom we disagree. We can bring peacefulness front and center. And we can certainly choose to keep the words of the Shema and what Jesus said front and center. Loving God, loving others, and learning to love ourselves. There's so much we can do in this Humpty Dumpty country of ours with God's help. That's good news. And I hope this is empowering because all of what I'm talking about for each of us begins right here. The place where Jesus waits for us to learn to follow him more closely in order to be his loving, healing, reconciling presence wherever we find ourselves, regardless of the opinions and actions and words of those around us. And let us now spend a few moments in silent prayer with God, praying to God about how it is that we each 
can be more powerfully the passionate presence of Christ wherever we find ourselves. Let us pray in silence.